be considerable diversity in the Christian church. Um, the, the UN has described climate change as the defining issue of our time and, and that we are at a defining moment. There are highly motivated people who are um, uh, speaking very, very regularly, and we will see it on all the media, media. You only need to call her Greta these days, and everybody knows who she is by her first name. Insulate Britain has uh, had its first um, people go to prison, I think, as uh, I noticed recently as they campaign. And uh, so many other voices on the environment it really does seem to be the defining issue of our time. How did we get to this moment of environmental crisis where people are, are deeply concerned and overwhelmingly now united that uh, global warming is a, is a real and present danger? How did we get to this position? Well, of course, there could be many, many answers to that question. But let me let me uh, um, mention an answer which was given in 1967, and since then has almost become one one of the um, uh, the sort of settled certainties in many, many uh, areas of uh, thinking on this environment. The answer, effectively, was that Christianity caused the problem. A man called Lynn White wrote a paper called The Historical Roots of Our Ecologic, and he used that word, ecologic crisis in uh, science in 1967. Man, he said, named all the animals, thus establishing his dominance over them. God planned all of this explicitly for man's benefit and rule. No item in the physical creation had any purpose save to serve man's happiness. And although man's body is made of clay, he's not simply part of nature. He is made in God's image. That was Lynn White's uh, assertion, or as he put it on another occasion, uh, we shall continue to have a worsening ecologic crisis until we reject the Christian axiom that nature has no reason for existence save to serve men. And there is no doubt at all that Christians have been uh, historically a part of the problem. Francis Schaeffer, who was a great um, uh, Christian apologist of um, uh, about that, that era, in fact, in the 60s and 70s, used to tell a story of how he went to a seminary in the United States to, uh, to speak. And um, uh, it was at the height of the hippie movement. And uh, across this little valley, the other side of, of, from, the, from, the ceremony, uh, from the seminary, in, uh, in the, the woods opposite, he saw a little hippie commune. And he, he loved young people. He loved alternative thinkers. Um, so in a spare moment, uh, in the midst of his lecture series in the seminary, he crossed the valley and went and sat with the hippies and spent some time with them. Eventually, he got round to the subject of Christianity. And he said, um, he said, why don't you become Christians? And they said, are you kidding me? Just look across the valley. And you'll see why. And he looked across with their eyes. And there was, was stark, bare, blocky, modernist concrete buildings 
in a desertified environment. And they were with the trees and the flowers and nature. He said they had a point. But blaming Christianity for all of our woes today, I fear actually greenwashes other belief systems. And for instance, it's common to affirm that uh, the Native American beliefs about ecology um, had kept America ecologically rich and diverse until the Christians arrived and destroyed the environment. But it has been demonstrated um, that actually um, the destruction of the American bison, for instance, from 30 million American bison in 1800 to uh, less than a thousand a uh, hundred years later, was uh, uh, was caused both by the Native Americans with their traditional uh, beliefs and the the Euro Americans who came because of guns, not least. And actually, neither that traditional uh, ideology and belief system or indeed the, the, the Christianity of the, of the settlers was sufficiently deep and rich to restrain people who suddenly found they could kill thousands upon thousands of animals when before they could only kill a few. Now, Christianity has a part to, to play historically that we need to be aware of and alert to. But other belief systems don't do so well either. What we need to do, I suggest, and uh, uh, what we have an opportunity to do this morning, is to go back behind history, to look at the foundational texts, to see what the Bible actually says and how the Bible actually calls Christians to live. And that's what I want to do for most of this morning. We have uh, uh, structured uh, last week and uh, this week really on the, on the sort of great story of the Bible, which is creation, how God created the world, fall. The, the sin of human beings, what's gone wrong with the world. Redemption, God's unstoppable purpose to restore his people. And we will see his creation. And, and to, to put right what has gone wrong with the world. Consummation, the final end of history when God has completed that story. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation is a good framework to look at so many different issues. And uh, when we get to creation, we find words that we've already looked at in previous weeks. God blessed the man and the woman and said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. You see, Lynn White described how human beings had been created to, to exercise dominion over the world. And he has a point. 
Genesis 1 here describes that. Rule over all of these things. Fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, Lynn White described the notion of things being made for man's benefit. And again, there is some support for that. I give you every seed-bearing plant. They will be yours for food, says God. He's right up to, uh, uh, up to that point. But he went further than that. No item, he said, in the physical creation had any purpose save to serve ma ma man's purposes. And that is way beyond what God has, is saying in the creation narrative. It becomes absolutely explicit, for instance, in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God uh, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. That word work there is uh, an important word because it is used elsewhere mainly of priests working or serving in the temple. You could translate it, say, he put him in the garden to serve in that priestly sense. As if he was serving in a great temple of God. The word take care of is also uh, uh, the word sometimes translated keep watch over. Guard. Keep. And again, that is uh, a word that is used to describe the function of some of the priests who kept guard. Of the temple. No, there, there is something about worship going on here. There is something priestly going on here. They were given the whole earth to look after as a kind of holy task, as a holy act of worship, as if the whole world was a great temple of God for them to serve in and to, to watch over and to guard. There was dominion of a sort. No one denies, no one seriously denies that human beings have a particular and unique responsibility in the, in the world. We've said that on an earlier occasion. But the thought that we were given it solely for us is frankly, in the Bible, blasphemous. We were not given the world to plunder it. We were given the world to care for it, to serve in it. It is God's possession entrusted to us. Actually, if you ask that question we asked um, uh, earlier a little deeper where did all this come from you find a different narrative unfolding 
you find a story of the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, both of which had roots in Christianity, but, but uh, um, uh, theologians would agree they are, they, are, they are frankly bastard children of Christianity. They are illegitimate offsprings. They take certain insights of Christianity and they drive them to the nth of de degree and so, so distort, in fact, what the Bible actually says. The two great ideologies that have, that have ruled and shaped our world for the last 150 years are, uh, would be Marxism and capitalism, for instance. Both of them founded, in fact, on, the, on, on a similar idea of progress. And of progress that involves human beings being liberated from creation, out of creation, not the liberation of creation with human beings at the helm. Marxism, for instance, is, is, is quite clear that natural resources have no intrinsic value except for their purpose to serve humans. And Marxism and communism have wreaked untold ecological disasters around the world as a result. To take two, just two examples, um, in Cambodia, Pol Pot implemented a, a, uh, a new um, a Marxist regime which took uh, the ideology to the nth degree. He couldn't cope with the meandering nature of the Mekong River and was determined to straighten it so that everything would be modernist. And he completely destroyed the ecosystem. Or slightly closer to home, the for former Soviet Union is a place of, of enormous degradation of the environment. One third of the population of Poland lives in uh, areas which are environmentally severely degraded. Or uh, ca take capitalism, another ideology actually built on a similar idea of progress, just progress in a slightly different form, and of human beings being liberated from nature. Capitalism is built on the idea that we need to constantly consume more. Every dip, every recession, uh, historically, has been uh, resolved by um, um, plundering new resources, effectively. Colonialism was built on uh, capitalism because the, 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 the extending of our reach and finding new resources was, was another thing that fed the capitalist uh, um, ideas. Fracking is driven by capitalism as people, people look for more resources, more oil in this, uh, in this case, to fuel an ever-increasing economy. It is built on it. It is built on some fundamental assumptions that suggest that actually nature has no intrinsic value. And at that point, they are fundamentally anti-Christian. It is to our shame as that too many Christians for the last uh, couple of hundred years 
have been seduced one way or another by the ideologies that at root did not recognize the extraordinary, glorious, wonderful, beautiful responsibility of serving in this theater of God's glory, as uh, John Calvin used to describe it. The creative world. So the Bible then would, uh, would call us in the very mandate that God gives to look after this world. And then um, uh, the fall, the, the, uh, uh, the, the great problem that is introduced into this world is described in Genesis chapter 3. To Adam, God says... Because you listened to your wife, do you remember, do you remember the, the, the dynamic there where they ate the fruit um, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Um, and God pronounces, because you listened and ate fruit from the tree which I have commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. Notice, this is very important. I, I said it before. Uh, each of the others receive their due curse. But when, when God turns to Adam, he says, Cursed is the ground, the land, the earth because of you. Their rebellion against God then has brought this trouble upon the earth. Work becomes toil. James is going to talk about that, I'm sure, next week. The land, verse 18, will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field, uh, and you will eat the plants of the field. They, they, they will still eat. They will still be able to uh, feed themselves. But it will be now against a world that is, that, that is, uh, that is so damaged that it is, it is no longer a joy of service it is hard toil um, and that theme continues down throughout the old testament as again and again it is israel's sin which leads to environmental degradation look look for instance at um, uh, Jeremiah chapter 14, the ground is cracked because there is no rain in the land. The farmers are dismayed and cover their heads. Even the doe in the field deserts her newborn fawn because there is no grass. Wild donkeys stand on the barren heights and pant like jackals. Their eyes fail for lack of food. Although our sins testify against us, do something, Lord, for the sake of your name, for we have often rebelled. We have sinned against you. Wild donkeys standing on the barren heights, panting like jackals, eyes failing. Deer deserting newborn fawns. Who can, uh, uh, who can avoid the, the, the pathos of that, destruct, that, that description of the destruction of God's creation? And note at the end, it is because of Israel's sin. Or um, 
Again, in Jeremiah, the land is full of adulterers because of the curse. The land lies parched. The pastures of the wilderness are withered. The prophets follow an evil course and use their power unjustly. Now, um, again, notice, notice it is Israel's sin that has caused that. But it is sin in the widest sense that the Bible says causes this. There is certainly direct ecological sins against direct ecological targets. There are certainly bad farming practices which damage the land or, or, uh, or, or, or filling of landfill sites which, uh, uh, which uh, ruins the environment. But the Bible says it is much more that the, the, the whole earth is degraded because of the whole accumulation of human sin. I mean, for instance, just to give you one example, um, which we have there in, in Isaiah. Woe to you who had house to house and joined field to field till no space is left and you live alone. Ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of, of grain. And a bath and an ephah are relatively small. That's, that, that, that's the point. But notice, it is their wider greed. You only need one house with one roof over your head. Why add house to house to house to house and destroy things through your greed? One of the bottom lines, frankly, as uh, environmentalists are, are warning us of what we need to do. We just need to consume less. We just need to be less greedy. And the Bible's been telling us that for 3,000 years at least. And deeper even than that, deeper, deeper than direct ecological uh, um, violations of God's creation, deeper, deeper than the, the underlying broader sins which, uh, uh, which cause the problems, are the ideological commitments that we have. If I believe the natural world has no intrinsic value save to give me pleasure, I will of course plunder it. But the earth is actually charged with the glory of a holy God. It is the possession of the living God. It is the, it is the, the, the temple of God entrusted to us to care for as priests, says the Bible. And suppose your parents gave you a house. And you, um, rejoicing in that, decide that you'll throw a, a wild party that goes on for a night and a day and a week and a month and a year and a decade, and millennium. And then parents come back. They see the incredible destruction that you have, uh, you have wrought on that house. And you puff up your chest and, and, uh, and say, but you gave it to me. It was mine to do whatever I liked with. And the thinness of that argument is palpable as it comes out of our lips.
No, for, for human beings not to care for God's creation is a monstrous betrayal of the living God. It is often said that uh, people today find it difficult to believe that they have really sinned against God. I want to say to you, really? Doesn't, Doesn't the very drumbeat of the story of what has happened in our world for the last 200 years Shout about our failure. I think a very common strategy is to say it wasn't me. I wasn't born. I'm one of the younger generation who's, who's campaigning every uh, um, every Friday lunchtime on on Bond Square to do something about it. Well, that that that's true, and it is good to speak up against it. But we are locked together. We are bound together. In such a way that it is very, very difficult. No, it is impossible to extricate ourselves totally. And to stand and say, I've had nothing to do with this. Feel the warmth of this theatre. I don't know how many pounds of carbon dioxide have gone into the atmosphere. For you to be comfortable here. I don't know how many tons of carbon dioxide were produced to make those comfy Seats. You and I have to be honest against God's word. We know we are locked into something that we are all engaged with. And we have failed the living God who created this world. So it is really important that there are more chapters in the Bible. God sets out to redeem his people. And I want to give you two little vignettes to start with as to what that that show you that, that give a taste of his intention for how his people should start to live differently if they are to live for him. Before we circle back and ask how then we can be those who live for him. First one's in um, the Old Testament law. We um, uh, could have gone to all kinds of verses and places in the, in the Old Testament that uh, in different ways demonstrate the call of God to um, look after the environment. But here's a fascinating one. When you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are the trees people that you should besiege them? You can cut down trees that you know are not fruit trees and use them to build siege works until the city at war with you falls. In other words, in the real world that the Bible anticipates, there will be war. 
there will be trouble. There will be resources needed to be expend, um, not least to, to, to wage war, because sadly in a fallen world, that is uh, inevitable. But, but you can live differently if you belong to God. In this case, you can select the trees and be careful about it. Because they are not your enemies. Are they people that you lay siege to them? The trees are innocent. And be thoughtful about how you use the resources for dealing with sin in the world. That little law in the, uh, on its own should make us think carefully about how we use the resources in the world. Or um, another little tiny vignette in um, uh, the New Testament. The Spirit, after Jesus has been baptized here, the Spirit sent him out. Um, you could translate it, drove him out into the wilderness. Uh, he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Uh, that phrase sent out, drove out, is interesting because it is very similar to the description of Adam and Eve being driven out of the Garden of Eden. Out of the place of order, into the, the wider world of disorder at that, at that moment. And here is Jesus by the Spirit, after he has, in his baptism, identified with human beings, being driven out into that place of wilderness, starting to experience what it means to be human beings, no longer in the garden, but out in the wilderness. And there is Satan tempting him for 40 days. The interesting thing is the last couple of uh, phrases there. He was, the angels attended him, and he was with the wild animals. Richard Borkham, a New Testament scholar, um, and numbers of others, makes the case that, that this picture of him being with the wild animals is, is quite clearly that he is with them in harmony with them. Conflict with Satan, but harmony with the animals. It, it stretches back to biblical Old Testament prophecies of of, of an extraordinary newness to God's creation so that lions lie down with lambs and cobras, infants play around cobras without there being uh, any danger. And here is Jesus now finding a first bit of harmony with the created world. It is a little, a little tiny snapshot but it indicates to us what will become very, very clear as time goes by. Jesus comes for nothing less than to restore the whole of his creation to the way that he intended it to be in the first place. To Peter chapter 3, for instance, makes it plain. plain. In keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Nothing less than that is the Bible's intention. 
How is Jesus going to do it? That is the question that uh, a well-read person would ask at the beginning of Mark's gospel when they thought him, saw him with the wild animals. How is he going to do it? He's going to do it in the most extraordinary way. He's going to... Uh, I haven't got a slide for it. He's going to die on the cross. What use is that, we're told? Because, you see, he now has taken upon himself the curse, as the Bible calls it. The consequences of the first sin that Adam committed. Who heard the voice of God saying, cursed is the ground. Because of you. It is no accident that on the cross, the gospel writers record, as Matthew says in Matthew 27 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land, all the ground, all the earth. Somehow when Jesus is, is dying on the cross, it's, it's as if all, all of that great, horrible, monumental curse that has damaged the whole of creation and human beings in particular, all of that is, coming, is being funneled onto him dying there on the cross as the Son of God. God the Son. Taking the penalty... For our failure, our sins, on himself. And indeed, even that, 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 that curse seems focused as well on the ground as darkness falls. So it is so, so extraordinarily important that the Bible then says three days later, he rose from the dead. He broke the curse of death. And with it began the process of reversing the curse on the whole of creation. There's a little, another little vignette which I think is purposefully put in there in John chapter 20 verse 25. Which is very, very important. Um. Mary, one of the disciples, is, is um, wondering why the tomb is empty, where, where on earth it's gone. And Jesus is there walking around. She sees him. She doesn't immediately recognize him. John says she thought he was the gardener. The gardener. Maybe even she mistook him for Adam, the gardener. But he's the new one. He's the new one who's going to do it properly as the first one didn't. He's the new one who's going to restore the garden. Uh, James will be talking tonight how his struggle was in a garden. It is no accident. 
because he reversed what Adam had begun. And he broke the bonds of death. And he was resurrected bodily as a physical human being. Sitting down by the Sea of Galilee and having breakfast of, of uh, fish with his disciples. And all the hopes and longings of the Old Testament. Now let me say it, say it broader. All the hopes and longings of human beings. Of you and me, of our whole culture, of our whole world, as we worry about the environment, all the hopes and longings of human beings in general began to be fulfilled in Jesus. And so we live then as people of genuine hope and genuine confidence. Dear friends, says uh, uh, Peter, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live good lives, abstain from those sinful desires. They are as broad and wide and deep as the human condition. And we need to do battle with them, with greed, with our thoughtlessness, with our refusal to take seriously the goodness of God's creation. You won't be able to do everything, but you can do something. Some of us perhaps will get involved in, uh, in campaigning. That is a, a good thing to do. Some of us might want to, uh, for instance, sign up to a, um, uh, an organization like Arosha, a Christian conservation organization, and get involved in, uh, in that. That would be a good thing to do. Every single one of us needs to think, how do we live as God calls us to in this world? And I don't mean these few little moral instructions. I mean this lifestyle. It is not overwhelmingly onerous. It is the way human beings were called to live. And as human beings, we will not be able to extract ourselves completely from the brokenness and fallenness of this world. I cannot control the fact that I am, this room is heated by a manner of heating that I have no control over. But we can do something. We can live somewhat differently. And we can do it because... We are gospel people. Is environmentalism the gospel? No, it is not. Not because it's not good. But because environmentalism on its own, environmental action on its own, will not achieve 
what human beings all long for? Now, the answer has always lain with Jesus, with his death and resurrection, and with the hope of a new heaven and a new earth that God promises us. Is environmentalism a pagan death cult? No. I mean, there may be the, a pagan death cult somewhere out there that is environmentalist, but if so, they should be found and arrested. Um, that, is, that, that is not the whole tenor of the movement. No, if we, if we believe in the creator God, who created all things good and put human beings in this world to serve and keep the world. Then we have to have some sympathy. How should we live? We should live differently. But um, we should live speaking of Jesus, surely. You are a chosen people. Just before that call to live good lives, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Christians, you see, uniquely, have a whole framework of understanding for this world that works. Yes, we have been seduced at times by ideologies that are not worthy of Christ. Yes, we live with the rest of the world in brokenness and make our own contribution to the problems. But it is the Bible that uniquely has a framework that gives us hope. Because the Bible uniquely shows us Jesus. And it leads us to that final day. Revelation 21 and 22 describe the, uh, God's final purposes in, with lots of symbolism. But the uh, symbolic um, description revolves around two things. It revolves around a city, which in fact has become a great temple of God, but that's um, for another day. And a garden, which has also become a great temple of God. And here's some of the garden bit. The angel showed me the river, the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. If you care about the environment... This is your only real hope. 
if you don't care about the environment, then you are not longing for what the Bible is longing for. Dare I say it, for what God is longing for. The restoration of all things. The bringing of all things under heaven and earth, under one head who is Jesus. The restoration of the beauty of God's creation. Its fruitfulness. Its declaration of the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we bow before you as those who we can see something of how we have, as individuals and collectively, made our own contribution to the damage of your world. And um, we ask for your forgiveness. But Lord, you've shown us Christ. We ask that you will help us to see how he is our only hope. For those of us here who have not yet put our trust in you, Lord, draw us to yourself. For those of us here who have, Lord, we pray. Help us to declare your praises to a world that so desperately needs to hear. Help us to live good lives in a world that is confused and yet longs to see real goodness. Help us to trust in Jesus. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.